This is a Momentum Media production. Nerd alert! Property Nerds, <laughs> the home for data-driven property investors, where we uncover Australia's hot and cold markets, latest headlines and trends. Welcome to the Property Nerds podcast. It's another episode and uh, uh, we don't start this episode with the greatest of news because New South Wales um, unfortunately went down to Queensland in the state of origin. So uh, it's that one time a year for any rugby league fans. Um, I'll be honest too. It's that one time a year where I, Lee and I sit down and we actually watch rugby league. Um, we sit down and we <laughs> jump onto that bandwagon. <laughs> yeah, absolute bandwagon. Uh, so anything basketball, you can talk to me all day about it. Uh, rugby league, this is my one time of the year where I actually uh, actually watch it. But unfortunate for us, I'm here by um, I'm here joined uh, by the the fantastic, the magnificent, the beautiful Lee Paliwal. How are you? Oh, wow, thank you. Hello. Yeah, I thought it. Uh, and I'm joined by the wonderful Arjun Palivar <laughs> I, I thought I'd spice it up uh, this introduction, <laughs> but um, Lee and I uh, give you some background for those who are tuning in for the first time. I run a data-driven uh, buyers agency called Investikit, and we help property investors start and scale their portfolios. With the majority of Investikit clients owning three or more uh, property um, properties in their portfolio, which puts them in the top 10% of property investors. So many of them working with us did not start their portfolio that way. They had no assets or just the one, and we're glad to be a part of that scaling journey. And Lee, how about you? Yeah, so I'm the director and principal for Hills Finance. We're located in the Hills District in Bella Vista of Sydney, hence the Hills Finance name. And yeah, we look after local professionals, business owners, investors, um, obviously needing assistance with all things finance. We do investment loans, residential lending, SMSF lending. We also um, have access to commercial lending and also we needed asset finance and also personal loans. So predominantly a lot of our clients, similar to what you mentioned, Arjun, is uh, they either have two or more properties, generally the one owner OCK, the one investment and looking to continue to grow. So yeah. That's a bit about us, but hey, enough about us, more about what some exciting stuff we've got to go through. So uh, each month for those who tune into the show, you'll be familiar with us putting together research white papers as part of Investigate and some of the free research we want to make available for many of our listeners and readers. Um, so thank you for all, all of you downloading them. We have you know, coming close to 10,000 downloads across our research white papers. And we cannot have that level of support without all of you. So massive thank you. If it's the first time that you're hearing about these papers, well, you can jump on, download them for free. It's investikit.com.au slash white papers. And if I got that slash completely wrong, just jump on investikit.com.au and it'll be up in the property market research tab where we've got an array of white papers focused on you know the topic of the now and what we're thinking is uh, the most important things that are out there that we can touch on and share some research and insights on. Well, um, I know um, we will definitely be touching on the most recent one in this episode. Yeah. So before we jump into that, as we do, we're going to dive straight into our finance updates. So for anyone that's new to listening to this podcast every month, I will cover off the ABS lending data and go through what does that actually mean? So ABS every month will release, you know, housing finance data. And this was just recently released for April 2020. And so I'll go through that. Cool. So housing finance, total housing has fell by 6.4% to $31 billion in total. 
and that's following a rise of 2.1% in March. So that's a, a little bit of a drop there, 6.4 down. And that was what rise in March, but then uh, a little bit down in April. Yes. So it will make more sense when I go through what that split up is between owner OC and investor. So owner OC housing fell by 7.3% to 19.9 billion. And that's the largest fall actually since May 2020. And then investor housing has fallen 4.8% to 11.1 billion. And that's after nine consecutive months of growth since June 2021. Well, so both investors and owner occupiers taking a bit of chill on, um, you know, their debt levels or finance uh, commitments over the month of April. Lee, when it comes to these numbers, what does that mean in terms of your observation on the overall finance numbers? So what does this mean? It pretty much appears growth across owner-oc lending has hit its peak because we have seen loan commitments go through the zigzag of up and down from Jan this year. It's definitely showing, you know, it's it's hit its peak levels, yeah. And so the investor curve, however, is much smoother upwards trend. And essentially there is this little dip that's just happened this month of April, but it's yet to be a clear sign of a downwards trend overall. Mm. And I guess it's also important to note that finance take up is still operating at levels that are over 50% more from pre-pandemic levels. And pre-pandemic, for those thinking how long ago that is, that's not 10 years ago. It's not five years ago. I know it sure feels like a long time ago that COVID was on our shores, but um, it's only two years ago. And so, yeah. Hence the largest fall being May 2020 for owner-oc housing. Obviously, the pandemic all started around March. Yeah. And so now, yeah, so... Anyway, so um, that's what that all means there. And so the other most important thing, I guess, that just got announced this week from a finance point of view is, again, a another cash rate hike following the first hike after 10, 11 years the month prior. So essentially, that was just announced um, earlier in June. And so May was, if, if you haven't heard, which I'm sure you have, but May was a 0.25% increase and June was announced for a 0.5% increase. So we're currently sitting at 0.85% cash rate. Well, 0.85 seems a lot more than the 0.1. So let's not pretend that it's not a lot more. But then it also doesn't feel like long ago we were kind of already at these levels. I mean, Lee, when it comes to cash rates, when we look back to, what, 2019, I believe the cash rate was sitting at, what, you know, 1.5%. So if we think of it that way, it's still half what it was only two years ago. So should households really be surprised or, you know, should they feel uneasy about it considering this isn't some 7 or 8% cash rate. It's half of what it was in 2019. No, I don't think people should be extremely worried because it's not all doom and gloom. Like you said, this should be viewed as a normalization of the cash rate. Essentially, as we know, a whole lot of money has been thrown at the economy to keep things alive following the pandemic and lockdowns. And this is from both the RBA and the government point of view. So obviously RBA keep decreasing the cash rate at that point and RBA with all their, you know, grants and all that kind of stuff that they they had on offer. So, so yes. like all the, go- the government, you know, I guess support and support and yeah. RBA support and toning down that cash rate was at the end of the day, just, just flooding the systems to give it as much support as it could whilst we're in the midst of this 
once in a lifetime event for many of us. And, you know, it did its job, you know, here yeah. we are, here we are Everyone's and here many are today. Along, so I Unemployment mean, rate, the lowest it's ever been yeah. for a long time and job advertisements are just going crazy. So I guess in a way it's like, Hey, something crazy went on. Lots of support got thrown at it. Yep. That support gets winded back and it's now time to see if that support was a structural part of our system or if it was just a temporary support and the economy still does its thing. And from what the signal suggests, with job ads surging and infrastructure projects galore and the borders, you know, on their way as well in terms of having more people and and so forth, things are still quite positive when it comes to that overall economic state. But on that note of interest rates, um, if you haven't caught the previous white paper, we talked about in the last white paper, it was actually about the um, five reasons, or sorry, five trends that we saw emerging from the borders reopening. And these five trends are re-emerge, uh, emerging from the borders reopening. One of the things that we talked about was changing economic winds. Uh, trend number five, if you haven't caught that white paper. And on that trend number five, I make a note saying, we will obviously see the interest rate rise cycle to do with many supply-related conditions and a strengthening economy. However, as borders get into full swing and people come into the shores of Australia seeking work, seeking opportunity, seeking leisure, enjoyment, whatever it may be, as the years progress, we're going to move into a level where we start to have the interest rate cycle not continue its upwards trajectory for for a key reason that the job market will have some pressure ease as more people hit our shores to have those jobs that are all over the place right now. So as a result of that, they will likely stop their rate rise cycle and eventually move into a static point and find that sweet spot. And also, you know, having that interest rate go back up is is a key part of the economy to show its strength. This is economics. Like we are not supposed to be at this super low interest rate forever. We're meant to see upwards moving interest rates as we have great confidence, but I feel that the interest rate increase won't completely solve the inflation piece because there's still so many supply-related issues. Once those things come into full swing, we may move into a more uh, rate-neutral or rate-cutting cycle again, just to kind of find that sweet spot between supply, inflation, and and actual economic strength. So keep your eyes out on that. But um, on that note, when it comes to, Lee, your thought for, I guess, the banks and how they look at the interest rate rises, do you think borrowers are underprepared or unprepared for this? I know 11 years since this has sort of happened, but looking at it, don't the banks consider this as part of it all? I don't think borrowers are underprepared at all. At the end of the day, the way I see it, the banks or lenders, they are a business at the end of the day, right? They're not going to give loans out to people with the, you know, the intention of them not being able to repay the loan. And they've obviously factored in that we were at the lowest rates ever. And they've obviously factored in some buffers to make sure that when rates do start rising again, which we're now starting to see, you know, the borrowers are going to be able to manage their repayments. So, you know, um, most recently, it's always the assessment rate. As we know, there's an assessment buffer that lenders will apply to the actual rate that you take on through a new application, which has been most recently sitting at three to three and a half percent above the actual rate that you're taking on. So the banks, you know, they've definitely already factored in, you know, uh, some safe proofing for as these rates rise. 
And I think this should give you comfort as a borrower that the lender has already stress tested you from a repayment point of view. Mm. And this is actually so fitting to the rest of the topic we've got for today, because I had a client call and we were talking about even crazier scenarios. So the property we purchased was um, low 400s, renting for low 400s. So pretty healthy numbers, uh, very healthy, actually. And uh, their thoughts were, hey, it's great that it's positive cash flow and positively geared right now, Arjun, but there's all these talks about interest rates getting into the twos or uh, higher with RBA. What does that mean then? And this is a good segue into what we're talking about. And, and Leo, I'll hand back over to you. But with this, this segue, we talked about rental increases. We talked about with that client discussion, deductibility of interest or expenses. And then we talk about breaking it down to a week-on-week review. And so we stress tested this at what 2.5 or you know 2.25% cash rates. And with that stress test, I think the, the property turned from slightly positive to $25 a week negative after tax refund and after rents rising our forecasted percentages over the next couple of years. So it shows you that at top level, he was looking at that figure of six, seven, eight K negative, but then um, once uh, per annum, but then once he toned that down and factored in uh, a combination of wage changes, rental changes, and tax deductibility of an investment property, the investments were okay. Where interest rates will impact more is that owner-occupier piece because uh, that doesn't have a rental income coming from it. It's just your overall expenses increasing. And we're those who have taken on fairly large mortgages and don't feel as comfortable in the last two years specifically. Banks have already stress tested that. But uh, the reason why I say this is that investors have that upside of rental income, deductibility, rental pressure. And that's what we're going to talk about today, the rental market. Exactly. That's a perfect segue. So look, the last two years, Australia has witnessed a rental crisis nationwide as vacancies in most cities have dropped dramatically. And so this rental crisis has triggered strong rental price growth in both capital and regional areas. So Arjun, I know you and the investor team have been really uh, researching away hard and obviously putting together your most recent white paper. So again, guys, you can find these white papers on investorkit.com.au forward slash white papers. And this June white paper is 20 regions where rental will continue surging. So yeah, I think if I hand it over to you, Arjun, everyone knows the rental market's going crazy. Let's start off with the why. The big why. Um, this is where people need to look at it as not just one thing. Like, right. So property markets, the biggest part we consider is that it's a lot more complex than many give it credit for. And uh, there is never just that one thing that causes everything. The same way interest rates will not cause a property market to implode because there's so many factors. There are going to be some markets feel it, some don't. It's the same way that we need to look at a rental market and why this is changing. I've been really fortunately to spend time and research and review this with obviously our research division internally. Jung and I have been putting heads together there, but also just catching up and digesting the research of many other experts in this field. We had our good friend Simon jump on the uh, Property Nerds podcast a couple episodes back and talk about the changing demographics, especially as a uh, demographer. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. we were learning a lot from him and especially taking those learnings as well as some of the other research that we've done, we've come up with some pretty pretty core reasons of why we think it's happened. But let me jump straight into it. The first reason, increased 
housing demand for detached houses. If anyone's looking to check out the chart, Household Dynamics is the name of this chart. RBA, Roy Morgan come together for the survey data. And there has been a huge drop-off in people living in share housing. So, you know, demand for independent housing, extra space, lifestyle. This has led to a decrease in average household size, an increase in housing demand, and a clear shift in rental preference towards lower density housing. I think definitely with the pandemic, there's a couple reasons for that, right? It's number one, people don't want to be around I guess, other people during a pandemic, if they mm. want to stay safe, that's what the thought would have been at the time. And then obviously, you know, people were probably staying put a bit longer where, you know, than they usually would with all that happening. What are your thoughts? Yeah, definitely. So uh, health and lifestyle, really. I don't want to be in a house jam packed full of people. Don't want to be in an apartment that doesn't give me enough fresh air. Want to have a bit more space to breathe, chill, work from home. Um, balance from home in terms of, you know, work yeah. from home, go outside, yeah. do something in the backyard. <laughs> for sure, for sure. So um, speaking of backyard, we don't use ours enough. It's like- No, it's, it's we hardly pretty... ever use it. It's because the dogs go poo and pee there. So yeah. it's probably not the best place Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know, on that note, remember how I think we were talking about our dogs being like our masters and us not being their masters? Because if you think about it, like we pick up, we clean their pee, we wash them. Like they walk us because they're they like us. ahead of us. They're ahead so they're of us. us so for all the dog owners out there, you are not the master. The dog is the master. <laughs> but increasing housing demand, especially for detached houses. That was the first one. Uh, Lee, did you want to run through um, the second one? So the second one was increased housing prices are making people stay in the rental market longer. Yeah, so Australia's high housing price in the recent property boom is forcing people to wait longer to get into the housing market. Mm. So, yeah. I guess when you look at that, you know, ING um, reviewed the national average age of first home buyers what, back in early 90s. How, how much was that, Lee, in the early 90s? Uh, 27. 27, right? And then so three decades later, um, this number went on to become 36. Right. So when you look at that, it's 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 a clear that people are staying longer um, in the rental market. And so there's greater demand there rather than that rental market, you know, leaving or becoming weaker in its pool or 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 less people being active renters. So that's definitely one part there. So I think when you when you look at that part, it's um quite important because you know, at the end of 2021, people aged over 40 made up a quarter of all first-home lenders, which was up from 9% 10 years ago, which means the age is being pushed back. So housing prices and that gap is definitely increasing. So that's another core part. This next part comes from our uh, research uh, that, you know, the likes of the demographic group, McCrindle, um, these sorts of demographers have really inspired us to see what's happening in this particular space. Lee, did you want to touch on generations and uh, what's happening in terms of the Gen Y age group? Mm, yep. So increased demand for Generation Y as they enter the family formation stage is the next point. So family formation is short for making Baby babies. Baby making. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is actually the largest demographic group in Australia. 
So now at 27 to 42, they are well in obviously the family formation stage, baby making stage. They're looking to obviously move out of home, shared housing or upsizing. And so compared to the older generations who have mostly sought out their family home, you know, where they live, all that stuff, the younger generations who are staying with family, Gen Y's housing demand influences the property market the most. So the more and more of them are, are, you know, that are getting priced out of uh, home ownership, their demand for rental properties goes up and is increasing. Yeah, so I guess the first uh, three points we feel have to do with just detached housing demand, Gen Y, and uh, the gap in house prices and rent prices, which um, cause you know just the longer time periods for people to be in the rental market. So the next part is, um, I'll, I'll jump on that in terms of just the demand and supply imbalance. There's a clear imbalance when it comes to the regional markets of Australia. Uh, Population in regional areas has just been growing significantly. And uh, when you look at, especially during the pandemic, which has been a big part, regional New South Wales and and Vic, their local rental supply just could not meet. And they're just two examples, could not meet the massive increased demand. So when you look at it from that perspective, there has been a huge amount of owner occupiers also entering the regional market. So when you think of those people taking up more stock in comparison to the investors, which is clear by the ABS finance data, which shows some of the biggest surges in owner occupier lending during the pandemic, that's a big part to replacing investor stock, but also creating a huge amount of demand shift into the regional areas, which has absolutely pummeled their vacancy rates that were already tight into huge crisis territory. So that's been a big one. Um, Other things that have been helping out, and it's not massive just yet, but it's one of the factors is reopening of the state and international borders. So I guess many short-term rental properties converted back to long-term rentals, you know, I guess as the borders open back up, they're going to come back into that short-term rental space as well. And also start to see the flow of students, other temporary visa holders, start to give that inner city love back. So that's kind of where they reach their peak and they should start to come around, especially around those university suburbs too. Mm. Um, Obviously we haven't had overseas students and things like that. So, you know. Yeah. yeah. With international borders. Big up. part, right? So that opening back up will, will be will be key. With regards to house prices, though, from a cycle perspective, that's another key part. They've outperformed rents. And house prices and rents tend to have that lagging relationship where rents tend to catch up. Uh, the house price performance, if you look at it from the 2006 to 2021, so a good 15 years of, of data, uh, there's 116% of you know, increase in prices. Wow. Right. Which is massive. massive. And for most of the time they were, you know, that little bit of a lead ahead of the rent prices, they're quite closely aligned and up until 2014. Then if you recall the Sydney, Melbourne and the big investor boom kicked off and that really created some separation, more rental supply across the two big cities and the rental trend and the house price trend didn't quite keep up. But weekly rental price trends have been up 65% over that same time period. So it's almost uh, half the amount of growth as house prices have had. So there's that lag and the underperformance is acting as a drag while the surging Mm. house prices push people away. So I feel that that Mm. catch-up needs to occur. Lee, in terms of another one, you and I talk about this all the time, but... You know, there's been a big fall in property investor activity. That was another reason we noted down. Did you want to share your yeah. thoughts on that? 
So definitely a big fall in investment lending over the years. And that would most definitely be due to the APRA limitations on yeah. investment lending, which has been obviously in full effect over the last few years and what, affecting what, those investors. What were some borrowing. of the APRA changes that came in during that time? So, so I recall one around the, I think it was the like the investment loan, uh, the annual growth benchmark that was there. There was like to stop the investment loans coming in because that was big. And there was also some things to do with interest only. Is that the case? Well, yeah. I mean, even when I started back in and lending myself back in 2014, 2015, we were doing interest only servicing. That has been long gone for some mm. time. APRA has limited interest only lending to 30% of new loans. These restrictions obviously have caused uh, suppression and in investing uh, activities over the years. And so it is indicated by the decrease in investment loan value and investor share and total property buyers. So interest only was one of them. And also that was definitely a big one that impacted, I guess, serviceability and people wanting to get into the investor market. Yeah. The other one that APRA placed on was that 10% annual growth benchmark on investment loan growth. So that was the first of the two. And then later on was that interest only lending that you spoke about, Lee. So those things made a huge, huge impact because obviously investor lending just clearly fell off. And when you look at that ABS data on investor lending, it's only taken until like what now? So that's a good four or five years of falling off the cliff for it to come back on. I think the other thing is on top of the APRA restrictions on investment loans, higher council rates, higher lending rates, land tax and other increasing holding costs of investment properties are also, you know, a bit discouraging to property investment activities. Mm. And that could obviously potentially reduce rental supply further. So that was another point regarding, you know, investor activities over the years. So those are our thoughts. They're the big why. So if you're thinking, why is the rental market going crazy? Just to bullet point that investor activity uh, falling off through self-sabotage by um, regulatory bodies and the banks that naturally have to follow. And so that was big. Uh, house price outperformance from the rents and the lag. Reopening of the state and international borders now coming back in to fuel rental growth. Demand supply imbalance in the regional areas that has just had a catapult of demand into there. Increased demand from Gen Y as the interfamily formation stage, increased housing prices, making people stay in that rental market pool longer, and increased housing demand for detached houses as people spread from share houses and, and those types of living conditions. So a lot of reasons there. It is not the one silver bullet that just made this all happen. It was many things, in our opinion, that came together. So, Lee, that's some of the reasons as to why, or the reasons we came in as to why we felt this rental crisis and the rental pressure we're seeing is in place. Fantastic. Well, in terms of, I know that you guys have obviously come through with some solutions to help relieve these, I guess, these reasons why. So I guess, yeah, what were the key solutions to relieve this? Well, definitely it's not a it's not an immediate short-term thing that happens just like that. It is going to be a, a longer term period of you know change that needs to happen. With, and this is just our opinion, right? Whilst these are solutions in our in our world, they're a lot harder to apply. But definitely the first thing that we wrote down was enhancing investor friendliness, right? To increase private investor activities. At the end of the day, the government is just not up to scratch when it comes to making more sustainable uh, housing and social housing in Australia right now. And so we need to look at that perspective of investing 
um, supporting private investors, the mum and dad investors, those investors listening to the show, as an example, kill the complicated rules, stop all this additional regulation, stop the unnecessary and over-the-top tax things that you throw on investors. Mm. The reduction in the desire to keep, you know, like just keep these assets and properties under investors' belts is piling up. You know, once investors start wanting to take care of their own financial futures and build wealth for their families and provide housing as as in turn, they just keep getting pummeled with the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And, um, you know, 90% of the loopholes that people are looking for in the ways to save tax or save money in investing or anything that they're looking for in this tax system in Australia, it's coming from the idea that they just feel really hurt with all the stuff that's being thrown at them because they're constantly seeking ways. And this also leads to poor investment decisions, people buying a whole bunch of new bills and apartments and shiny stuff because they're looking for ways to not feel as hurt on the cash flow or all the stings of, of costs. So or benefits of depreciation. Yeah. So um, reducing taxes targeted to investment properties or investment property owners is a big one. You know, we do see stamp duties come up in time, land taxes, another huge one. Council rates. There's some councils across Australia that charge you more just because you're an investor. They oh. do the same work on your house. They don't do any more, any less, but just because but you're just an investor, investor, they charge you more. So pretty poor Ridiculous. form there. Um, finding a better balance in legislation. You know, we all know the fine balance that we have to have in uh, tenancy landlord relationships. But if you go over the top on one, it's going to cause, again, distaste for an investor to want to remain active there. I think Victoria uh, by far has some of the most strict rental compliance rules. And I have no doubt that they've driven up holding costs and making investors leave or remain less active in these markets. Imagine going from, you know, getting a property manager to you know, spruce up the property and make it as nice as possible for your tenant to now going, hey, we need to charge you for a checklist to be followed. On top of that, we need to have more inspections, gas, water, electricity, every single type of inspection that you can think of under the sun. And then we need to flick that onto you to, you know, pay more, uh, do more improvements in your property. And the list goes on. So it's important to have that tenant-landlord relationship be fine and and have a fair and comfortable living environment. But at the same time, just swinging things the other way are going to be issues. And the last point on that whole enhancing investor friendliness was encouraging regulatory bodies such as the APRA to focus more on just the whole overall credit framing than targeting investors. Because as soon as we have this moment where finance takes off and property prices go well, everyone's talking about APRA's going to come in, APRA's going to come in. To me, that's a flaw. If you have to talk about someone coming into your system to change something because you know people are having a higher level of demand, mm. stop coming in to change and tweak things just based on demand level and take up because you need to look at the overall framework and stop targeting an overall a particular group and make it the overall framework. So that whole point of your framework of assessment rates, assuming credit cards Debt are maxed out. ratio, that's another thing. That's right. People with three, four properties already, they might have the serviceability, but with the debt to income ratios that lenders are looking at now, they're still getting hit that way. So, mm. I mean. Well, I mean, we, again, we have to find the balance of safety, but then if you keep having a jump in prices, all of a sudden raise this reaction of, oh, APRA needs to come and look in this. Yeah. Then, yeah, that to me says you you think there are flaws in the framework. Well, I think the framework We're based on Australia's brilliant. history yeah. 
is very healthy very. and constantly coming in to adjust that framework means you're not owning up to the fact that you think the framework is flawed. So I feel that Australia has a very prudential credit system with high assessment rates and you, you cannot just target one investor base again and again and again, you know, and clearly this level of demand has been driven by owner occupiers. So mm-hmm. I hope that, hope that goes in. The other part of one of the solutions we raised was increasing investments in social housing and BTR. So BTR is build to rent models. So uh, I know Lee, you've watched a lot of the Grant Cardone videos and you see in America and all these huge, huge thousands of rental properties, like as in like one property. Like a thousand doors. A thousand doors in a unit block. We don't hear about that stuff in Australia because as soon as developers pop open a huge unit block or a huge massive uh, development, they just flog it off to mum and dads to buy up all that stuff of Mm. which, you know, some is owner-occupier, which soaks up some demands and some is investors. But the whole point of um, building like what they do in America and, and UK is that if we can make it rent. solves a rental crisis, right? Because then they just it floods rent a back. whole bunch of stock. Exactly, it floods, floods a whole bunch it's of stock win-win. to the market, and also it actually makes renting more normalized, mm. more popular, because some of these places they're epic. Like just oh, they got the facilities, everything's got, there. You know, the gym, the, the pools, whatever. Love it, right? Movie cinemas, gyms, childcare pools, like restaurants. Resort style, it's literally a resort. So how can we do that without making the mum and dads, you know, foot the bill? and get some underperforming asset, how do we, how do we allow an asset to still perform at a huge corporate level of ownership, allow there to be a flood of rental stock to the market to allow uh, that ease of pressure, allow lifestyle and, and, you know, quality of these lifestyles to be enhanced. And that's where build to rent just is a, is actually starting, but it definitely still has a long way to go. So we can see that coming into it, but it definitely has a long way to go. And, you know, coming back to that social housing piece, Australia's population has grown by more than 30% in the past 20 years, but the social housing stock has barely changed. Mm. Um, Grattan Institute's research was great in this. Brendan Coates, uh, Director of Economic Policy, he mentioned that in 1991, 6% of housing in Australia was social housing. Mm. But now that number is less than 4%. So we need we need more social housing investment from the government is another key part. Would would build to rent models support the social housing, or is that two separate? Two separate things. So the the social housing is for the government to play that key part in. But yep. what build to rent is is the government playing another part, where from a taxation perspective has largely been the main reason for unpopularity in Australia. But if we can pair up with some of the biggest bodies to create an environment where they feel you know, more capable, um, more willing, and um, more supported in building these large build-to-rent models for uh, property unit blocks, then they're just able to collaborate and bring forth that stock in large volumes purely for rental and uh, all of it in one go, Mm. right? So that's what it is. It's happening, but it's still got a long way to go. Yeah. Um, Lee, did you want to, you know, go into this last piece? Because I know this last piece is something we talk about when we travel across Australia. Um, Quite a lot of land around. And a lot yeah, of land around. That brings to the, the next point is a structural change to our cities. So Australia's population is extremely concentrated. So 72% of Australia's population is concentrated to a few major cities. 
And so only five cities have a population over 1 million. And that's in contrast to UK, for example, where the population is merely distributed um, across all their cities, right? So so what, 21 cities in the UK have a have a population of over a million. million. Yeah. yeah. And so I believe the population of Australia is what, 25 million now? And so we've only literally got five of those cities with over 1 million. Yeah. So you so, can see what that does from a, a planning pressure, right? And also from the the constant, you know, solutions that are there are, are just putting out small fires rather than big structural change. And I think this is probably something that you know, we were talking about, I can say that the cl- literally the other week, like yeah. you, you will be driving, you know, as you do along the motorway and you can see mass amounts of vacant land. I mean, more so just like as you go through various cities connecting to Sydney and the likes of Melbourne, oh, the population drop off is just and so huge. around the shoreline as well, right? So- right. And the population drop off is just huge as you translate outside of our sort of five big cities. Um, the gap between them is just massive, mm. you know? So what does that mean? It's easy to say, yep, spread it, but how? So we just need to look at how can we enhance the livability and connectivity of regional cities, right? Make them places where people want to even more than today. It's already very popular, mm. but even more than today, want to live there, want to, you know, feel like it's great from a, a multi aspects of life, lifestyle, social, transport, work, affordability, whatever it may be. And that means we need to think big. We need to think massive projects across connecting cities, but also within our cities, not connecting them, just making them more comfortable and better places to live. Question on that. When you go to Bendigo, is that a direct flight? It is. So yeah, air air travel is one of those ones that can play a big part because that connectivity piece. But again, air travel is just one of the solutions, right? We've got some of the busiest routes in the world when we talk of Sydney and Melbourne. Mm -hmm. Um, Imagine how much pressure there is in our domestic airports, just people flying between the two cities. One of those reasons is obviously connecting to those two cities, but second of those reasons is also using them as connection points to other cities. Yeah. This is where things like- Not just between the majors, between the other regions. This is where things like rail, high-speed rail becomes important. And Mm -hmm. you can just take a look at the impact they make across other parts of the world. So we're very much behind on our connectivity of cities and massive infrastructure planning when it comes to big city changing and country changing stuff. Fantastic. So the next one, uh, the next point is improvements to our planning system. Mm, So I guess various studies have really highlighted the importance of planning and land use regulations. And when we looked at the impact of it from housing affordability in the economy, uh, RBA in 2018 released a research discussion paper, which um, estimates that in 2016, zoning restrictions raised detached housing prices 73% above marginal cost of supply in Sydney, 69% in Melbourne, and 54% in Perth. On the other hand, um, if we look at the conflicts that exist between state and local level strategies, uh, overly prescriptive zoning systems, uh, complex development assessment approval processes, you know, all of these things create barriers. Now, barriers need to exist to to ensure we maintain the integrity of certain cities and uh, the character, the appeal, the safety, more importantly, as well. Um, but these barriers need to find that balance. And in some way, some may argue we're we're perfect and we don't have enough you know, regulation, we want more. Some may argue we want we want less. 
But the main thing is um, zoning restrictions do play a part. And the RBA's research paper back in 2018 highlighted this as a core core component of uh, housing price changes and how it's uh, increased a lot more because of uh, what's happening. And look, some reforms, I don't want to take the credit away. Some reforms are are in place and uh, people are undertaking them. New South Wales had one recently. But long story short, as we're saying, more needs to be done. Okay. And so the last one is reducing the taxation charges on new home building. This is huge. So you go and get a new build. It looks fancy. It looks great. But what you're paying for- Bumped their costs up recently since all the supply chain issues and everything. What you're paying for is a bucket load of tax. Right. Right. And that's what many people don't realize is that in, you know, AFR and Urban Development Institute of Australia uh, put some numbers and research together. And this is where things get pretty crazy. This is a 2017 AFR report, and it was the government's take on a block of land, you know, can be as much as 40% of the total costs. That is huge. 40%. Just think about that for a moment. Imagine you give someone uh, $10 to buy this new shiny thing, but $4 is straight into the government's pocket. So that is definitely playing a key part because it makes housing more expensive, right? So the greater the gap is, which we touched on one of the reasons, in new building housing as well, this reduces and lowers the rate of supply that can hit the market as pricing is one component of demand and ability to get in. So reducing taxation charges on new home building Mm. is one key part. But Lee, that is um, our solutions and our opinions of solutions for what we feel will help put this rental crisis at ease over time. It is not a silver bullet, but a combination of all these three things or four things coming together will definitely make a big difference. Amazing. Um, A lot of, a lot of good information there. Now, obviously we've gone through the why, the solutions. This report actually has 20 key regions where rentals will continue to search. So tell me, Arjun, what are the standout cities that Investigate found in this research? Yeah, so firstly, when it came to selecting 20, this was probably one of the hardest things to do because all these issues that are causing this rental surge coming together, they are just so prominent across many parts of the country. It's not just a couple of key standouts that we could say, hey, here's 20, these are going to be strong. Um, There was a lot of cities, and so culling it down to a list of 20 was extremely difficult. When we were doing this research, we relied on a few indicators, Lee. So we were looking at statistical area three, so SA3s, if anyone wants to do some more research on them, they just, uh, in simple terms, they're a cluster of uh, many, many suburbs coming together to create a bigger region, but not quite as big as, say, a council or a city, Mm -hmm. so they're in between. But what we were doing is we were looking at things like rental price trends, uh, rental you know, supply and demand indicators, um, long-term pressure versus short-term pressure changes, vacancy rates, rental percentages of uh, ownership, and also building approvals in the pipeline that would go on to at least be some level of rental uh, components, uh, rental properties. And we also looked at things like unemployment, job ads, things that bring more people to that workforce and, and rental capability or rent paying capability. So when we looked at all these factors, um, our forecasts were firstly that these 20 regions are going to see rental increases by between 2,600 and 5,200 per region in the coming 12 to 24 months. So that is no small amount. In a a 
on a per annum sense, you expect these areas to go up by that much. Yeah. So 2,600 to 5,200. So if you're thinking of interest rate increases, uh, this is going to play a lot of uh, counter reaction to them, meaning it will definitely solve some of them. Not all of it because interest, uh, interest rates are, uh, changes to a much bigger dollar figure. Yeah. So, you know, 2,600, 5,200 is still big dollars, but if your mortgage is a million dollars, that's tiny dollars, right? So I think that's the key true. here is that we're doing see rents playing one part to help out. Well, that's the benefit of, I guess, uh, positive cash flow or if not neutral, neutrally geared invested type property. So yeah, <laughs> I mean, this, this just will further strengthen them. So they will strengthen, but on the other side, interest rates will pull them down. Um, so you'll have a yin and yang effect on, on that end. But Pointing out some cities, I wanted to give it a shout out to a couple. So um, across the capital cities, uh, Adelaide and Perth uh, were definitely standouts, but it'd be hard for me to ignore the likes of Hobart as well. So um, all of these cities have played a big, big part. Um, Brisbane obviously is there on our list as well. The but I think Brisbane is the bigger. Uh, th- that was one of the cities there, but Adelaide and Adelaide and Hobart were definitely more of stronger parts okay. when it came to lower vacancy rates. Um, okay. 0.2% in Hobart, which is practically zero, and then Greater Adelaide at 0.3%. So that were the two standouts amongst the capital cities. So expect rents to continue surging there. Amongst the regional cities, I'll just give out a couple. Of, you know, still want to make sure you have some cities there for you to read if you're looking to download this white paper. Again, it's up now on investikit.com.au. Click on the property market research tab, and you should be able to um, get it yourself a free copy of this report, which is the solutions, the why, and uh, of course, the the 20 cities in question. So uh, in it's review. a no brainer to read it if you're looking to invest anywhere in Australia, right? I mean, ideally yeah. you want your rent to cover your costs. Exactly. If you're looking to have your rents go up and see them go up, free these report. cities, I mean, free report, these cities will, the cities will deliver in our opinion. So look, some standouts, if we look at New South Wales, uh, Wagga Wagga and Quenbian, uh expect some pretty strong increases in rents in these areas. Um, Queensland, we saw Toowoomba as one and the Sunshine Coast region of Budrum as another. Uh, Bundaberg was also another one too in there. Um, there, were, there were multiple markets here that were looking very strong, but they're just, they're just some examples. If we go across South Australia, the Barossa Valley is a clear standout. They have a huge rental crisis there. In Tassie, we've got Devonport, Bernie Alveston. The list continues, but uh, Victoria, we haven't forgotten about you, Warrnambool and Shepparton, two, two examples of markets there with very, very tight vacancy mm. rates. There were many others as well, Townsville, you know, Cairns, the list goes on. So selecting 20 was super tough, uh, but How on that note- How did you go through that there. process? I mean, obviously you've got a, do you have an Excel spreadsheet? Do you know it? Like what is that process? Yeah, so like? we went through vacancy rates, building approvals, rental days on market, rental for lease quantity of listings, 10-year rental growth versus one-year rental growth. The list continues of of things we looked at, building approvals, job data, where we felt all of these things were going to come together and create pressure. Mm. Um, So at the end of the day, when you look at all of these points, the problem we have is there's way more than 20 regions that are going to see that level of increase, 2,600 to 5,200 in our opinion. It's just, it was super hard culling it down, but there's a lot of lot of parts of Australia seeing that. So yeah. Well, there you have it. So there's the 20 regions where rent will continue surging report. If I was you, it's a free report. If you're looking to invest and you want to take advantage of, you know, tight vacancy rates across the country, I mean, this is a report that's going to help you make a 
clear decision of where and what areas you would probably want to be looking at investing in. So to me, that's a no-brainer. So again, guys, investikit.com.au forward slash white papers is where you can find these. This is the most recent report for June. Um, so thank you so much for everyone listening in. Thank you so much, Arjun, for all that amazing information. It's been very, very useful. And again, guys, it's not all doom and gloom with the interest rates and the cash rate going up. You know, we're all being you know, I guess stress test. And so I guess if you can get into the market and keep buying, I mean, what would you say, Arjun? Go for it. Yeah, well, I mean, there's definitely going to be areas that won't blink an eye as a result of those interest rate changes. There are going to be some areas that are sensitive to it. You know, markets like Sydney and Melbourne have seen their listings come up to their 10-year averages in some cases, which means there is no huge stock shortages and then when you think of no stock shortages and a bit of slowdown in the demand level and credit that you can get and more costly money, of course, they're going to be a little bit more sensitive to these changes and may see prices slow down even more. But when you look at the whole country, there are still stock shortages, many places across Australia and May ending data. I'm not talking about last year, the pandemic boom. I'm talking May ending data. There are capital cities, example, uh, Adelaide is one coming close to 2% month on month growth, which is uh, just under 2%, which annualizes at 20% plus, which is a hell of a property boom number. Mm -hmm. And then you've got a dozen, dozens of regions that are at that same level, if not more. So the key here is there are opportunities all over Australia. Rents are going to continue surging and they will play as a hedge for investors. If you own owner-occupier housing, let's get your take a step back, review your household finances, review other parts. Um, the whole point of these interest rate rises is to keep inflation into check. And you reviewing your household finances will be a part of that because you will see that your owner-occupier property does not produce rental income. And you will see that the payments will be more. Mm -hmm. And because of those payments, you can handle them. The bank serviced you at a rate that you could handle that. Yeah. But you need to look at other parts of life to make sure if you want to still live the same lifestyle, things will cut back. And that's the point of it. Like the whole point of RBA is to find a moment of cut back economic boom, cut back economic boom, just to find that sweet spot to not let it run away. It won't be solved from interest rate increases alone because there's so much supply related issues. But many parts of the country will be fine. Most of the parts of the country will be fine. We're just at 1.5% back in 2019. So it's not all doom and gloom. And if you're no. looking to see rents explode by 2,600 to 5,200, uh, we've got a list of areas that we think this will happen at. Uh, and there are many more parts of the country for it to happen. So that's it from the Property Nerds. And I uh, hope you enjoy the research paper. Take care. Game over.